Welcome to the official podcast of the Researchers of Truth US. If you would like to support the creation of this content and spread it to everyone who is looking for it, join the community on our Patreon channel. Your contribution is very valuable to spread the teachings. Many blessings. Keys to the Kingdom of the Heaven Hello, everyone. In this next lesson on spiritual awakening, we are continuing to speak about how we will reach our destination, self-realization. What tools will we need to open the doors to higher and higher states of consciousness, reaching to real self-realization? This is the true realization of our inner self and not the realization of the personality self as it is today. Now there's a place in the Bible where Christ says, I will give you the keys to the kingdoms of the heavens. But the Bibles we have today never mention what those keys are or how to use them. Let's talk about them here today. Dusclos calls them the five golden keys to the kingdoms of the heavens. They are introspection, observation, concentration, and meditation. To open the doors to the heavens within, we really must start practicing with these golden keys using our real willpower. Now, the first golden key is introspection, and it produces the best results for spiritual upliftment. Initially, the process of introspection is done at the end of every day. Later, you will introspect not only at the end of every day, but all the time. We are to do introspection as an exercise every night before going to sleep. And you don't need a lot of time, five or 10 minutes. Go through the day recalling the events. You start at the beginning of the day and go forward. Just relive the day's events. This is a great practice for uplifting your spiritual awareness, and it simultaneously improves your memory as well. It also improves your observation skills because to remember something, you have to observe what's going on around you. Otherwise, you won't remember what you did that day. In introspection, we bring the day's experiences back fully into our conscious mind. And when we find something that went wrong, we examine it, but from a neutral point of view. Maybe we said something really egotistically. And now, in introspection, we realize, oh, I shouldn't have said it like that. I should have said something kinder, and things would have gone better. During the practice of introspection, we recall our day, and as we do so, we ask, what did I say that I shouldn't have said? What didn't I say that I should have said? What did I do that I shouldn't have done? What didn't I do that I should have done? What did I feel that I shouldn't have felt? Or what didn't I feel that I should have felt? What did I think that I shouldn't, maybe not have thought? And what didn't I think that I should be thinking? So we're working at all three levels, physical with our actions and words, psychical with our feelings and desires, and noetical with our thoughts and intentions. Some people have trouble doing this. They say, I try to introspect, but I don't get anything. I don't see anything to introspect on. That's because these things are hiding. A person's elementals composing their negativity, uh, their negative egoism, hides from their view. It's a lot like, say, you're in a room in a low-rent district of a big city, and they have cockroaches. 
In this condition, in the, at nighttime, if a light is turned on, the cockroaches immediately scurry away and hide. Similarly, when we use the mind light of our own focus to look at our weaknesses, they run and hide from our view. So we must be very patient. It takes a lot of observation to catch our own egoism and the undesirable elementals composing it. This is what the golden key of observation is for, to discover our mistakes and weaknesses. And it's not difficult when you find one, say when you get in an argument with someone and you say something you should not have. Okay, maybe you heard harsh words spoken against you. This is the moment when your egoism will come forward to defend you and accuse the others. But don't let it. Your egoism often presents the excuse for your incorrect reaction by blaming others. Egoism makes the argument like this. Well, that person spoke down to you. Don't let them say that about you. You have the right to tell that person they're wrong. Now your egoism has exposed itself. And now it is the perfect time to catch it. During the practice of introspection, our egoism will always try to take that mind light from our hand that we are using to find the things we need to purify and correct in ourselves. And this isn't a masochistic thing. In fact, you shouldn't do introspection from the vantage point of your own personality. You should try to create a sense of a detached witness in yourself as you do the introspection. You're not on your side. You're not on the other person's side. You're just an impartial witness. You don't blame yourself. You don't be a masochist because egotism loves to play a devil game on us. It is just such a devil. Sometimes it encourages us to do some behavior which we shouldn't do. Then once we've done it, our egoism flips and starts to make us feel bad about this. It loves to play both sides of the fence against us. Now, in psychotherapy, they're always saying you need a psychotherapist playing the role of that third party in psychoanalysis. But you don't really need that if you can develop that third party witness in yourself and do the practice of introspection very honestly. Again, the egoism tries to take the mind light out of your hand and distract you by saying, well, look at their behavior. It's much worse than yours. And maybe that works and you forget that you're supposed to introspect on your behavior, not others. And you're supposed to start judging your behavior, not judging the other person. The whole thing sort of becomes like an argument a lawyer would present. Nothing against lawyers. Lawyers argue to blame the others and exonerate their own clients. Egoism, too, argues to blame others and exonerate its own actions. We don't want to blame others, and we certainly don't want to exonerate ourselves if we are the one who really made a mistake. If you make a mistake, just be honest. That's what we were saying before. When we make the seven promises of research or of truth, honesty with yourself is the most important part. And we are not alone in our introspection practice. Right alongside us, guiding us, is our own guardian angel. Maybe you don't sense his presence, or maybe you do sense his presence, or maybe you feel him next to you or behind you. Usually, you don't see the guardian angel. And at the time, you may perceive his guidance as a new thought or perspective that seems like it's rising from within you. Inspiration comes from our own guardian angel. 
in spirituality, we talk about the inner self and the outer self. But when we do the work of self-analysis, the introspection, what self is doing this work? And which self is being analyzed? Well, we want to try to do the introspection as the inner self, of course, which is the real will. But the, it's the outer self's behavior that we're introspecting on. The inner self has no need of self-analysis. The inner self is helping us to see and understand what needs to be corrected in the outer self so it may attune and be assimilated with the inner self. That's the work and duty of the inner self. It, if there are serious flaws in our personality self, it's not going to be possible to merge with the inner self. When you first start to discover your inner self, it's a really beautiful thing because it's just like a baby discovering its own mother. When a baby's born, it cannot see right away. So all it knows is the feeling of the warmth and comfort coming from contact with the mother. And that's our first contact, too, when we start to feel our inner self or our guardian angel. We start to feel its presence in and around us first. We may sense its presence, and it gives us a lot of solace, a lot of comfort. At first, you don't hear words. You don't see him, but you just feel him. And slowly, the next thing with a baby, it starts to learn to recognize its mother's voice. And this happens with our inner self, too. We begin to hear the voice of the inner self, which is virtually identical to the voice of your own guardian angel. They can't say anything different from each other because they are egofied. They are unified together. They are at one. In fact, they are in a state called at-one-ment with each other. So they can they say the same truth. Sometimes it even seems that your guardian angel is acting as an intermediary, speaking for your inner self. With a baby, the next thing that happens is that it opens its eyes and it starts to see and recognize its mother's face. It is only when the child grows up long time after the child grows up that they finally start to understand their mother. And it's the same four steps we go through with our soul self, our guardian angel. We are now standing at the edge of our subconsciousness and peering into it. Honestly, for most people, their subconsciousness is a jungle and it's full of wild beasts. Wild beasts like anger, aggressiveness, malice, jealousy, fear, and the like. Introspecting is as if you went to the edge of a jungle and tried to look inside. You might not be able to see anything. No. We have to be courageous enough to go into that jungle called the subconscious and see what's hidden there. But what is the subconsciousness, really? Psychiatrists speak about the subconsciousness without really knowing exactly what it is and where it resides. The subconsciousness, to give a metaphor, is like an ocean. Your conscious mind is like the surface of the ocean. Everything underneath the surface is sub the subconsciousness. Those psychonoetical creatures, our elementals, living down there have a right to come to the surface from time to time. And that's what they do. The elementals rise up to the surface of our consciousness and feed, and then they dive back down into the subconscious. Later, they come back up to feed. They feed on the energy of our attention that we give to them. 
Just like with an ocean, the deeper you go in the subconsciousness, the stranger the creatures look. They are elementals, of course. But don't be afraid to enter the jungle of your own subconsciousness. It might be a jungle right now, overgrown with thorns and weeds. But in a way, that's really a good sign because it shows the soil of your subconsciousness is quite fertile. So if you clear out the harmful and negative parts, the good will grow better and faster in that fertile soil. We can say the subconsciousness is like a big warehouse. It has three chambers. One chamber is full of our own elementals that we have created and stored. They live there and they surface from time to time and affect our lives. Then there's this other chamber that has pure energy, which the archangels are using to keep our bodies alive and make repairs. We can't touch this chamber. Yet there's one more chamber which has the energy we're using for working, talking, moving around, doing all the things we like to do. And there's some, something else mysterious. Daskalus called the subconscious mind. It exists with these other chambers. The subconscious mind is different than the subconsciousness we are creating with our elementals. This part just obeys. And that's why hypnotism works. And that's why auto-suggestion works. Because the subconsciousness does not analyze. It does not say what's good or right or wrong. It just acts on what it's been given. Whatever thoughts and feelings we have automatically get implanted in our subconsciousness. And the subconsciousness just blindly obeys and tries to manifest it. Maybe there are thoughts like, I'm good or I'm bad. I'm sick. I'm poor. I'm not happy. All that subtle self-talk is programming our subconsciousness to manifest whatever we think about ourselves and our life. So the real question, and I put it to you now, is what are you thinking about yourself? Do you think you're not as good as others, or maybe you think you're better than others? Maybe the storyline you tell yourself is that you think you're a victim from other people. Or maybe that you are a failure or that you're God's gift to humanity. It doesn't matter. Whatever we are telling ourselves has a huge effect on what is happening now in our lives. Have you ever noticed that a successful person has a string of successes? Whereas an unsuccessful person has a string of failures in their life. In other words, success follows success. Failure follows failure. Now, why do you think that's true? It's due to the programming of a subconsciousness. If we have had successes before, they're stored in our subconsciousness, and that tends to manifest subsequent successes. We just expect to be successful again. And there's real power in that expectation. But if we have big failures in life, that too gets impressed into our subconsciousness, and that tends to bring a series of subsequent failures even if we've had some successes in our lives and our view turns pessimistic, people will think and even speak against their own good, noble aims in life. Have you ever been inspired to do something good, to create some good work or help somebody, but then some pessimistic thought arises to counter your good intentions and you start to think, oh, maybe I can't do this. Maybe I will fail. 
How many times does that kind of thinking block people from their own success? But have you ever considered what you might try to do if you knew you couldn't fail? Think about that for a moment. What people do not realize is how every thought, desire, and feeling makes an impression, for better or worse, on their consciousness and subconsciousness, as well as on the vibrational rhythm of consciousness itself. Let's say you have a good intent to do something that sets up a positive rhythm in your subconsciousness. But then when you doubt yourself, it sets up a rhythmic condition that has a negative effect, canceling out the positive rhythm, and your good intentions do not manifest. Proving yet again, man is his own worst enemy. One of the great secrets is that our successes and failures in life are dependent upon our own attitudes. Our attitudes become like a magic wand creating comfort or chaos in our life. The power of thought, which creates a good or bad attitude, is really a divine power given to humanity. We should respect this power by keeping our attitudes positive. Daskalos understood this and used it to facilitate healing. Daskalos healed in a couple of ways. One way he healed was by using the etheric vitality to flood the patient full of energy. He also used this energy to rematerialize nerves, lengthen short legs, dematerialize tumors, and more. But he also healed by programming the person's subconsciousness to heal themselves. So whatever the story you have told yourself and the others around you, it has programmed your subconsciousness and it's trying to be manifested now. Daskalus often declared, Our subconsciousness is our best friend or worst enemy. It can cure incurable cancers or it can send you to an early grave. Of course, that's all depending on how it gets programmed. It works like a computer, really. A computer doesn't judge how you program it. Garbage in, garbage out, they say in computer programming languages. And it's just as true concerning how our subconsciousness gets programmed. We are programmed by our own subconscious mind, and the Master Daskalos sometimes use this knowledge to help program the subconscious mind of a patient to manifest wellness. We spoke before about the breast cancer case that Daskalos had. In this case, a woman had been to doctors who had told her she had breast cancer. So she comes to Daskalos carrying an arm full of x-rays and doctor reports declaring she had breast cancer. And what she did was just ask Daskalos, do I really have cancer? Can you imagine what he might have replied? His reply was, if you tear up the doctor's reports and x-rays, you won't have cancer. What? Amazingly, she believed him and trusted him and destroyed the reports. Her trust in his words created such a strong thought form such a powerful elemental that went into her subconsciousness and reprogrammed her thinking and manifested perfect health in her body. She had small children at the time, and she ended up living a very long, happy life enjoying her grandchildren. Now, this isn't an advice for us to play with other people's subconsciousness. Daskalos was a master of this. But it shows you the importance of what we think and how it manifests. Another case, 
Duskos had a couple of students who heard his teaching on the subconsciousness we've been talking about, but they were a little mischievous. One time, these students in Daskalos visited a rural small village on Cyprus, where there was a common friend who was a farmer. He was the kind of guy who worked hard in his field all day long. He was as strong as a horse, never sick a day in his life. One of the doc, one of the students was a medical doctor, and the other was a psychiatrist. And they said, let's try and see if we can make him sick by just telling him he is. They schemed that the medical doctor would meet the farmer on his way out to the fields. And when the medical doctor sees the farmer, he acted so surprised and concerned. The doctor said to the farmer, oh, how are you? Are you ill? You don't look very good. The farmer said, what are you talking about? I feel fine. I'm strong and good. The doctor then said, no, no, you don't look well. You have a certain disease. I've seen it before. Maybe you do not feel well now, but in a couple hours, you're going to start getting sick. And when it happens, go to bed for three days and then you'll be all right. The farmer said, I'm fine. And he just walked away. But as he's about to enter his field to work, the psychiatrist comes up to him and says, what happened to you? Are you sick? The farmer again denied. No, I'm well. I'm fine. I'm, leave me alone. The psychiatrist says, no, no, you have a disease. You better be careful. Do you have a fever? The farmer says, no. The psychiatrist says, well, you will have a fever soon. And when you get it, go immediately to bed. The farmer dismisses all that and continues out into his field to work. Now, Daskalos told him not to play this trick on the farmer, but they did it anyway. As Daskalos and the students were watching, the farmer goes out into his field and starts working. Pretty soon, he starts feeling tired, and he gets a fever, and he starts wiping the sweat off his forehead. Now he's really sick. The farmer finally stops working in the field and goes back home to bed. Daskalos then insists that two, the two doctors go and tell the farmer they were playing a trick on him, and he's not really sick. And at the same time, he rebuked them for misusing their knowledge about how the subconscious works. And so they go to the farmer and say, sorry, we were just playing a joke on you. You're not sick at all. The farmer reacted, what are you talking about? Can't you see I'm sick? I have a fever and I'm so dizzy I can't even stand up. The farmer didn't accept the doctor's disclosures and ended up staying in bed for three days, just as the doctors told him he would. Then after three days, he felt better and strong and went right back to work. That's the power of the subconscious mind. We need to pay close attention during introspection to help us understand what stories we're telling ourselves, how they are programming our subconsciousness, and what the, the outcome of this programming will be. What stories are we telling ourselves? Are we happy? Are we sad? Are not good enough? We're better than others? The stories we tell ourselves become the subconscious programming that shapes our lives. Now, here's the important point I want to make about all this. The farmer consciously rejected the suggestions he was sick twice. When the people watch violence on TV, in a movie, or a first-person shooter game, in these video killing games, our children are making hundreds and hundreds of virtual kills in one hour. Some reports say 900. And they tend to dismiss, the people playing the video games tend to dismiss the effects and, oh, it's only a game. It doesn't really count because it's not real. 
Recently, the FBI did a study on the effects of first-person shooter games in real-life combat. What they found was, it is real. It was sucking because there was no difference in brain response from playing violent video killing games as there was from real-life combat in war. There's so much violence in our movie. We're programming our society in a horrible way. I'm expecting to see really not so good things come from this. Well, we're already seeing this with public mass killings. We did a podcast on psychiatry and exorcism a few years ago. At the time, there were about 200 mass shootings a year. A year later, there was over 300. But last year, there were 611 mass shooting events that resulted in over 500 deaths and over 2,500 injuries. Most, not all of these killers had played the first-person shooter video games. Now, visualization is one of the most powerful, important things. 